We live in a world where the narrative is that somehow God is a question mark. Is God real is a question mark. Is he involved? What's he like? Does he speak? Can we know him? Is there life after death? Why is there so much suffering? Where is God when that happened? And where was God when that happened? We live in a world that seems to be asking those kinds of questions. Questions designed to place us directly into the posture of a victim. Questions designed to make God somehow the one who owes us something and has wronged us. Questions designed to make doubt more reasonable than faith. Questions designed to make fear more reasonable than trust. And questions built on assumptions that the Bible doesn't even understand. The Bible presupposes that God is present, that God is known, known, knowable, always here, always speaking, always good and faithful and trustworthy. And the Bible presupposes that the only thing that could block Communion is on our end of the equation. And that no matter what we do, God shows up. Genesis chapter 3, they eat the fruit that they're commanded not to eat. And some Christian traditions have said it's cosmic treason. It's rebellion. And now wrath is all there is in God. Except I read the story and I don't see any of that. You know what I see? God shows up just as though they had not sinned. But who's missing? We are. We're the ones that sin changed. Our capacity to trust was broken. The Bible's not saying, is there a God? Is he real? Does he speak? Is he involved? Does he care? Is he knowable? Is there life after death? Where was he when that happened? The Bible is asking the question, are there really people? Are they real? Do they show up? Do they listen? Do they want to know? The Bible presents the idea that you and I have a God who's easy to know and easy to love and that we're responsible for what we do in this walk with him. In fact, we're so accountable and so responsible that Romans chapter 1, Paul says that what you can know about God without a Bible, without a preacher, without a church, 
What you can know about God, namely that he's eternally powerful and completely good, everyone already does know. That's what, that's what Romans 1 says. Everybody already knows. But it says, but since we didn't value that truth, God allowed us to harden our own hearts and become deceived. It says that we exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and then instead of worshiping him and serving him, we worshiped things in his, in, in his place. And we become like the dead things we worship. Because we always become like what we worship. And on the scene comes Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that in the past, God spoke through prophets at various times and places, but in these last days, that means that when the book, when the book of Hebrews was written, those were the last days. Interesting. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son, who is the exact imprint of his image and the radiance of his glory. Paul used to persecute the church, but then he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to try to arrest Christians. And a bright, shining light, so bright that his eyes were damaged in the, in the exchange, shows up and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so that just radically shapes this man. He's, he, he now concludes that Jesus is what God looks like. This God he's been seeking to worship looks just like Jesus. Isn't it fascinating? So many times in the Bible we find, like in John chapter 1, he says, no one has ever seen God. But actually in the Old Testament, Moses has an encounter where he, he is in, he's allowed to see God's glory. Not his face, but his his. His afterburners. <laughs> and when he spends time in God's presence, he comes down with his face glowing. Jacob wrestles with an angel right before that encounter Melissa was talking about with his brother where he's freaked out by the Jabbok River. Jacob, it, shows, it says a man shows up and wrestles with Jacob all night long and as the sun is starting to come up, the person he's wrestling with says, you got to let me go. Why? Well, Jacob didn't know it was the angel of the Lord until some way through the wrestling match, apparently. And when he realized it was the angel of the Lord, he got even more serious and said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then at the end of the exchange, the angel of the Lord wrenches his, sock, his hip socket out of place. I don't know what, there's an illegal, I doubt there were referees to this uh, octagon, this ultimate fighting uh, match between the angel of the Lord and Jacob. How many of you know that if the angel of the Lord wanted to, he could have just snapped his fingers and Jacob would have been dust? Okay, so, so why? Why wrestle? 
Why would God wrestle with you and I instead of just tell us you're wrong or tell us you're right? So the angel, I'm not answering the question, I'm just asking it. What do you think I am here for? What do you think that's my job, to answer questions? It's my job to make you guys ask questions and go on your own journeys. He wants to make sure we got it. That's why he wrestles with us. Well, that doesn't sound fun. No, it doesn't, but ask <laughs> So God puts an illegal move on Jacob. He walks with a limp the rest of his life, but he's freaked out because he's seen the Lord. He's freaked out. I think it was what, Samson's parents find out they're going to have a hero born into them, and, and the angel of the Lord shows up to them, and they go, oh my word, we're going to die, we've seen the Lord. P typically in the Bible, people's response to seeing the Lord, now, they don't really see the Lord, do they? They see the angel, they see the afterburner, they go up and they see the glory cloud. They see the symbols of his presence. But every time they even see the symbols of his presence or the messenger that represents him, they freak out and they fall on the ground and they say, I'm going to die. Am I right? And then you find Jesus shows up on the scene. And I'm just going to read this to you. This is from Colossians 1. You might have had a theory that we were headed to Colossians 1 and you'd be right. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. No, there's no one else in human history where that is said. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is what God has to say. He is what the Father is like. God's been involved, he's been active, he's made himself known to everyone, but something different is going on in Jesus. Something so different that, that Paul says that these Old Testament encounters, John says these Old Testament encounters, don't quite compare. It's different when the angel of the Lord comes than when Jesus comes. And into this world where we think that God has not made himself very known, that doubt makes sense, that distance makes sense. In fact, we get religious as a response to the feeling of, of yearning we have for God. I found it interesting that as a young believer, I worked at, you guys know the story, I worked at a microbiology laboratory as you know, and don't know, I didn't have a degree. I worked a machine, and I worked hard. And I went to work in the dark. Where's all my seasonal affective depression people at? You don't have to raise your hand. Just, just who loves sunlight like air for your soul? This global warming is, warming is just doing wonders for my, my seasonal depression. Anyway, can I say that? I can't, okay. I would go to work in the dark and I would live in a fluorescent lit room. I think hell probably has drop ceilings and fluorescent lights. And they buzz. Those fluorescent lights in hell, they buzz. Um, and they always tell you that your shift's going to end soon, but it never does. Um, 
And there's no Christmas. And every day, all day, as a baby Christian, my job was to figure out how to do everything that I used to do for me, for God instead. So that instead of get up, brush your teeth, take a shower, go to work, for me, it was get up, brush your teeth, take a shower, go to work, for God. It's not so much that I stopped doing normal human things. It's that now everything that I am and do is infused with the spirit of the indwelling Christ who lives here. And so now everything is worship. In fact, maybe 10th on the list of what worship is involves music. 10th, probably. Maybe 11th. Everything is worship. Then I, so all day, every day, work the machine, put in the Petri dishes, put in the auger, they go through the thing, the ultraviolet light kills all the bacteria. 20 of them, I can feel 20 of Petri dishes with my hands and my whatever. I can feel the timing with my internal clock that develops. I can feel what 20 feels like without counting. That's 20. Put them in the box, onto the next. And then I got 15 seconds to read my Bible. If I read my Bible too long, the Petri dishes start to fall down and cost me money. But if I just stand there doing nothing for 15 seconds, what kind of life is that? You know what I'm talking about, anybody? And so I figured out a way to not just do the Petri dishes for the Lord, but to redeem the 15 seconds and be reading my Bible and be cranking up some music. And, and then I'd get off work and I'd go home and seek Jesus some more in various ways and forms. Sunday would roll around. There's a point where we're headed. There's a point. I'm not just talking about myself because it's fun. And y'all are here looking at me. Your smiling face. And Sunday would come and it would be church time. And I'd show up, and we'd sing the songs. We'd pray the prayers, and somebody would preach a sermon, and we'd do a thing, and there'd sometimes be an altar call. And it never felt as anointed as my machine at work. It never felt as unbroken in terms of the fellowship as my times at work alone. The normal day for me felt way more anointed, more close, more present, more in the zone, more in the revelation, in the flow of what he's saying, what he's doing, what he's revealing, than church. Church was hit or miss, and I love church. But church was a 7 out of 10, and work was a 9 or 10 out of 10. I had experienced more Jesus in my secular stuff than in my sacred stuff. And the reason is, the sacred stuff came later. The secular stuff came first in the garden. We weren't made for religion. We weren't made to come to a building to find God. We're the building. We weren't made for special songs to work up an emotion to experience His presence. His presence is just here. And it always struck me as weird that people seemed to really want a pastor. They needed to shake the pastor's hand and have the pastor call him on the phone. And it's almost like they needed a pastor instead of Jesus. Amen. And, uh, you know, all I wanted from the pastor was preach good. That's all I want. I don't have to know you. You don't have to know my name. Just preach good. Just, just If you know Jesus in private and you burn, then just burn in public so that causes me to burn. That's all I want from you. If you know my name, that's bonus, but it doesn't matter. In fact, the one time the pastor called me into his office to get to know me, felt weird. Felt like he did it because he was supposed to do it. And I thought, why are we here? But Sunday was a letdown compared to my regular life is what I'm trying to say. 
And so I shared that with Gary, the assistant pastor, one day. And he said, that's interesting. Now all these years later, I hear people saying, church is supposed to be the thing that boosts me up so I can survive my life. And I'm going, but, but we can't take this with you. But you take him with you. This is for him. This moment right here is for him. Worship is sacrificing to the one who is your God. That's the essence of what worship is, is sacrifice. In fact, you can tell what somebody's God is because that's what they make all sacrifices to prioritize in their life is that's what their God is, right? And we use it as a metaphor in our culture. We talk about everything that's of priority is going to require sacrifices, but we're really using it as a metaphor. But biblical worship is a sacrifice, and it's not a metaphor. It's a literal sacrifice. And even to this day, New Testament worship is still literal sacrifices. When we gather around the Lord's Supper, we're not re-offering Jesus as though we're re-crucifying him, but we are re-participating in an eternal sacrifice as the centerpiece of our worship. I just think it's so crazy that like sac sacrifice used to be the essence of worship and fellowship used to be the goal of the sacrifice. And now when we think of worship, instead of thinking of sacrifice and union with Jesus and regular life being filled with God, now we think of songs. And we think of something coming to me and something that I'm feeling. And we like leave and we go, was that a good worship service or not? It's so backwards, dude. It's like so completely backwards. I'm like wondering if maybe our idea of worship is not rooted in that first story that I was just telling earlier about a God that's distant and silent. And maybe we think that if we sing hard enough, then he can break that, rend the heavens and come down because he's been absent somehow. And like biblical worship, it presumes that God is present and it assumes that we're the ones who have the distance and that sin has affected us. And the sacrifice covers and removes the shame of our sin and guilt so that we can, like Hebrews says so many times, draw near. And so what does it mean then for Jesus to show us what God is like? It means too much for me to talk about in one sermon exhaustively, doesn't it? Way, way too much. But I'll say just three very simple things. In Jesus, we see a God who is present not absent. We see a God who is emotionally invested in what's going on in our lives, not cold. And we see a God who is involved and speaking constantly. He's not cold, he's not distant, he's not absent, and he's not silent. None of those things. None of those things. He was with the disciples for three solid years, 24-7, because that's where the life comes from. I said this quote the other week. I'm going to say it again. The reason that believers are not afraid of hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters and famines and, and pulpits and... <laughs> Aunt Mary, see, that's why I should just hold still. She's like, why does Tim walk around so much when he preaches? Just to be dangerous. 
I lost my train of thought. I'm not going to lie. What day is it? I was trying to recover. You saw me try. I was like, well, there's, there's, two, there's, there's two ways I could handle this. Pretend I know what I'm doing or admit defeat. <laughs> lost my train of thought, y'all. It left the station without me. Uh, Jesus was with his disciples, found it, thank you, Lord, 168 hours a week. And I said this the last time, that, that what, you know, what changed these boys from turn and run boys till, to, instead of turn and run boys, to ready to die. The crowds noticed that they had been with Jesus. And even after all that time, Philip says, because he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he knows that. He's going to return to the Father. They still don't get it. And he says, uh, I'm going to go return to the Father. And then a conversation about where is that ensues. And then Philip finally says, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And then you can just see, who remembers this, this scene that I'm talking about? Show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Anyone remember this? Can you, can you, can you see what the look is on Jesus' face when, 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 when he, this question is asked? Philip, how can, you, how can you ask me to show you the Father after you've been with me this whole time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've just been showing you the Father day in and day. Everything I do reveals the Father. Everything I say reveals the Father. What jokes I think are funny reveals the Father. Where I stand and where I make eye contact when someone's talking reveals the Father. Who I ignore and who I focus in on reveals the Father. My roll of the eyes for the religious leadership and my joyful wink at the little kid who's actually distracting people from the service reveals the Father. My refusal to, to, to pick up stones to stone the young woman caught in adultery revealed the Father as much as what I wrote in the dirt. How can you say, show us the Father? Everything I am is revealing the Father. He's better than we thought he would be. It's an understatement. And his worldview isn't what we thought it would be. I did that little exercise that I had you guys. How many of you, when we did the steamy bathroom mirror exercise? <laughs> I know that's awkward. Imagine you're in your bathroom. No, what? What are you saying? Why? Go away from me. Don't tell me what to do. You know? I'm that guy when the worship leader's like, no, everyone clap your hands, clap your hands. I'd be like, I don't think so. No, you don't tell me what to do. I'm led by the Spirit of God, not by this joker. Everyone do jumping jacks. Nope, not me. I ain't doing jumping jacks. But then the Holy Spirit's like, do jumping jacks. Yes, sir. Help. I don't like this at all. 
But I did that little prayer exercise this week, and the Lord's answers really surprised me. Oh, man, should I say this? How many of you know I, I like pastors? I'm for pastors. And I'm not anti-gathering in a building as the church. Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together. I wasn't down on that. But what am I, what am I endorsing in telling that story? I'm endorsing that the way I've lived is the lifestyle that's the normal Christian lifestyle. And it flips the whole narrative that the world is thinking is true on its head. And that world narrative has crept so much into the church that we think doubt is not something to repent of or unbelief is something to repent of. We think distrusting the Lord is not something to repent of, but rather just something to be transparent about. Now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying stuff that down and lie to yourself about it. That's not good. That's not healthy. Jesus knows and wants to hear about our doubts and fears. He wants to. It's not, it's not healthy to stuff down stuff that you shouldn't think or feel, quote unquote. But what I am saying is there's stuff we think and feel that we're called to repent of and grow out of that we have so endorsed as reasonable because we actually still believe this God is silent and distant and and absent, and we almost think faith is heroic. Wow, just look at them go. I can't believe they're holding on to their faith through all those hard things they went through. Now I'm going to restrain myself and be nice. They're not holding on to their faith in the midst of that thing. If they are, they're not holding on to faith at all. If their faith is anything like Bible faith, it's holding them. If your faith is something that you have to hold on to, holy cow, your tiny God, your little tiny fragile God, an heroic believer, this heroic believer, chiseled, wrinkled face, you know, hair all messed up, looking haggard and tired, but clinging to faith like the martyr they are. What are you talking about? Faith is actually quite different from that, isn't it? Faith is this conviction that, of course, I'm small, but God's amazingly strong and present. Faith is grounded in his presence and his nearness and his goodness and that he says things clearly to us so many simple biblical instructions presuppose God's active involvement. The James passage, somebody prayed over me this morning, said, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Who prayed that, Pete? It was one of, the, one of y'all. It was either Carl, you, or Rust. We always call you Rusty, and then you send emails, and your name is Russ, Russell or something like that. Russell? Legally change it to Rusty. Russell. You don't have to do what I say. But what he prayed over me was, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, 
Now, here's, a couple, here's two ways of thinking about that. This version over here, this sort of worldly version of faith, says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God, and then just keep plugging away, and maybe one of the choices you end up choosing, God will have blessed and somehow led you to the right thing magically through providence. This over here says if anyone lacks any kind of wisdom, they can ask God, and God's extremely talkative, and he'll tell you what to do. He'll give you insight and understanding. He'll, you'll have a conversation with Jesus, and he'll renew your mind, and insight will come, and your heart will be able to stay in a place of peace the whole time, and you'll be able to stay in that holding pattern until you have understanding, and you can step forward with peace. That feels like a bit of an upgrade, doesn't it? That if you're not hearing, the problem's not on that end, something else is going on. The Bible just presupposes a very talkative God, extremely willing to shepherd his flock. Extremely willing to shepherd his flock. John says it this way, y'all don't need anyone to teach you because the anointing that's in each of you teaches you all things. What? One of my spiritual heroes says, whenever I'm confounded by something, I have found that when I ask humans for advice, I usually become more confounded and stressed. But when I converse a lot with the Lord about the matter, he tends to give me very wise counsel and resolve the issue. What? I ask for counsel from people who I, want to, who I want to see the fruit they have in their life reproduced in my life. But I don't just ask humans on planet Earth for counsel. Does that make sense? But John has this confidence that Jesus is alive and present via the Holy Spirit, and he's still up. We say that Jesus is the head of the, of the body, and we're the body. So why is my heart beating right now? Because it's receiving information from my brain via electrical signals from my autonomic nervous system that tell it to beat. Why do my muscles work the way they work? Because they're receiving signals from my brain. And the way the body of Christ is meant to work is that every single person in the body of Christ is meant to have an intimate, personal, close, daily, practical relationship with Jesus so that you don't drive in the car anymore alone. You drive in the car with Jesus. The goal is not just to pray sometimes and have prayer times. The goal is to pray without ceasing. And the goal of praying without ceasing doesn't mean don't stop talking. When you really know somebody well, you're able to be in the car with them and not talk. And when you're with somebody who doesn't know how to do that, it gets fairly exhausting. <laughs> Some of you are like, when you call me on the phone, Tim, sometimes I wish you would have said what you said shorter and quicker. Like, the five-minute version, I would have got it. You didn't have to give me the 45-minute version. We're not at church. If I wanted that... I would have put an offering in there and sang some songs first. The five-minute version will do. I'm sorry about that. Feel free to interrupt me uh, when we're on the phone and say, I got stuff to do. Because <laughs> I know I talk. But 
The prayer without ceasing that the Bible brings us into, the relationship with, you're like, how is this related to the image of God? This is how Jesus related to the Father, and this is the relationship with the Father he revealed to the disciples. God is really good. God is really loving. God is always on the move. God is always working redemptively. He's present in every circumstance. We never encounter a person that the Father doesn't already love and isn't already moving in. And so my goal is not to make God do something. My goal is not to move God's hand. My goal is not to beg God for something. My goal is not to fast and pray to get heaven to do something and shift earth. My job is not even to shift some sort of atmosphere. My job is to sense what the Father is already doing and partner with that. Because he's already here, he's already involved, he already loves this person more than anyone else possibly could. How can you be with me all this time and, and, and not know what the Father is like? All the stuff that we blamed on God before Jesus, cancer, war, famine, heart attacks, everything, natural disasters, Jesus calms the storm, heals the cancer, raises the dead, all that stuff that we had a theology for, where it was God. He undoes. Prove me wrong. Our theology is basically us trying to make sense of a fallen world. And the way we made sense of it is to say, well, there's a good God, so the bad stuff that happened somehow had to be good. We just don't see the how. And then Jesus shows up and says, are you kidding me? That just wasn't his will. That happened because it shouldn't have happened. It happened because people weren't doing his will. That's right. I love Bill Johnson saying, the birthplace of bad theology is church leaders feeling pressured to give answers to things the Lord isn't addressing. Church leaders feeling pressured to be able to explain things the Lord isn't explaining. In other words, talking when God isn't talking, or talking about what God's not talking about. So Jesus isn't fooled by our questions. He reframes the question. Uh, Lord, uh, my brother, he, he's uh, trying to steal the inheritance money from me. We're all just so broken up here about the loss of our parents. So sad. Anyway, can we have their stuff? He was trying to get their stuff. I want the stuff. It's not fair. He's always trying to get his hand in there. It's been this way since we were kids. Yeah, so I want you, you're fair. You're a fair judge. Why don't you choose between us? Here's a newsflash for the parents. Give everything away to the kingdom before your kids can get their grubby hands on it and fight over it. Don't leave them anything. Just give it all to the kingdom. If my mom and dad do that, I'll be like, well, I asked for it. Uh, <laughs> It's right there on record in that sermon. So, but Jesus does, refuses to let you put him in a role. Whoa, God the Father never appointed me to be your arbitrator, but I will tell you this, greed is going to eat your lunch, boy. You should be much more, in, more concerned about what's going wrong inside you that you want that money than whether your brother is going to be able to take it from you. Mm-mm-mm. Right? You can't pigeonhole, you can't, you can't get Jesus on your agenda because he's always on the Father's agenda. Right. Same in my relationship with him right now. Right? So sometimes the stuff that I'm praying about and worried about, the only reason I'm worried about it is because I'm not standing in a place of faith. And so then he's real silent about the things that I'm praying about, rooted in worry, not faith at all. And the whole time he's just sitting there and he has all kinds of, he's not having a bad day. Just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean he's having a bad day. But if all prayer is, 
is me trying to get God to do what I want God to do. That's not faith at all. And that's just Jesus didn't do that. Okay, I probably should stop talking now, but... This feels like it wasn't even a sermon about the passage. (laughs) Well, we'll just have to keep preaching that passage until it feels like we've said it. Are you guys okay if this Colossians series is really, really, really long? Because it's turning into that, isn't it? It's like, we finally got to the hymn to Christ. We just finished the introduction in prayer. What in the world time is it? 12.06, you better shut up. Go ahead and stand. I want to give you some homework for the week. And the homework is those two lines from that song. You're so easy to love and you're so easy to trust. I want you to have some conversation with God about those two statements. You know, God, do I believe you're easy to love? God, do I believe you're easy to trust? How do I see you, God? Just, you don't have to do it this very second, but that's your homework for the week. We were, we were, made, unbro- we were made for unbroken communion. I think we can get to the place where, I think. When you talk to these seasoned saints, these saints that have been walking close with Jesus for like a lot of years, they say, I gave up on living for me being happy a long time ago. I gave up that. I gave that up. I gave up on twisting God's arm and having my way. I gave that up a long time ago. My whole goal every day has been, I don't care if my life is easy or hard. I just want your will. And, what, and this, is what the saints, this is what the saints say. Once, they say, once I gave up worrying about how I'm doing and how I'm feeling and how life's treating me, and I made the only thing I care about doing his will, he just kept blessing me with joy. He just kept pouring his... his I just, I didn't make it. I didn't care if I had a good day or a bad day, but I haven't had a bad day in 30 years since I surrendered my will. And you go, that's a lie. Look, I'm just telling you the testimony of some of these saints... It's what they say. They say, I I keep saying, Lord, I don't need feelings. I just want your will. I'm just going to devote every activity to you, only to you, only to you. And then he just keeps turning on the pleasure and on the hope and on the joy the whole time. And the only thing that seems to block that is when my will starts to tell him no. Other than that, So, Father, we ask for your goodness to be revealed afresh. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We want to see you. We want to see you.